Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Lit to Lens podcast. I am your host, Will. We have a very special episode for you guys today. We are interviewing Elaine Schefter Bishop. She is the founder and CEO of Vast Entertainment. She is the Emmy award-winning director and TV and film producer focused on book-to-screen adaptations, Hence why we were so interested in bringing her in for an interview. Very lucky that we did. Lane has been in the film industry for a few decades. She is known for films such as The Duff, Assassination Games, and Desperate Widows, which was released in March 2021. She is also the author of the book Sell Your Story in a Single Sentence, Advice from the Front Lines of Hollywood, available in paperback and on Kindle from Amazon. Lane was an absolute delight to speak with, and it warms our hearts that someone is out there fighting for the book. Here's our interview with Lane Schefter Bishop. Take it away, Eric. Okay, Lane, thank you for joining us today. Um, so you are the CEO of Vast Entertainment, which is why we wanted to have you on today. But I know that you're also a creative person. You're a writer, you're a director. So I wanted to start by asking you just what made you want to make a career out of the creative arts? I have always been interested in this arena since I was a little kid. I started off as an actress doing little commercials. Uh, and then as I grew older, I realized my real love was directing. Uh, so I was a theater director. Um, I was like the youngest person to have a show at the Old Globe. Uh, I did a little bit of television, got my DGA card. And um, once I became union, I realized how difficult this industry really is because most of the work when you're on your way up is non-union work. Um, so, you know, it was tough. And, and at that time, anyway, um, I think it's changing finally now. Uh, but at that time, it was really hard as a female to get work. Um, I got lucky sometimes because my name, Lane, doesn't really tell you that I'm a girl. <laughs> so I got to do a lot of rooms where, you know, you walk in and it's very clear they thought you were going to be a guy <laughs> or whatever. Um, and so uh, after doing theater for a while, I went to USC film school and realized I liked film much better. Because in theater, you know, you're... Your job is basically, how do I get the audience to look at like that part of the stage? You know, you're really trying to direct them to a certain spot. And in film, you just put the camera there and go, look at this. <laughs> Plus, I, you know, I really, I'm anal and I, I just loved the idea that you could really craft a performance in editing, you know? Because um, really my love has always been actors. I just, I love actors. They're amazing, you know? Um, I'm a little bit, I guess, empathetic. Like I, I feel like I always tell them if I don't feel it, there's something wrong. <laughs> I'm like, I'm the one crying at the cards in the Hallmark store, you know? So um, that's where it started. And then, you know, once I got into the industry, I, I started producing specifically because as a director, you know, you're, you're sitting around, you're waiting for the phone to ring. It got very frustrating. Um, so I started to just make my own work basically is where I began and why I became a producer. Um, and uh, I ended up working uh, at a company as their EVP. Um, and that's where I sort of discovered that I had been a lit major before I went to film school. And so I discovered that I could actually combine books and movies. And that was like the best of all worlds in my, in my book. So in 2008, that's what I started to do. I started to create uh, book to screen stuff. Uh, initially for this company, I contacted Sandra Brown. I talked to her into doing a deal with us and all of that. Um, and then when I went out on my own, end of 2008, early 2009, um, and started to do book to screen, I created Vast. Uh, at that time, other than, um, is it Alloy? I'm blanking on the name of the company that did Pretty Little Liars. But uh, other than them, I was the only one doing books. And in fact, no one wanted books. No one. 
<laughs> because it was all they could do to read a 120 page script. If you said you had like a 300 page book, they looked at you like, uh, uh, you know, and they weren't going to read it anyway. They're going to give it to their 17 year old you know, intern to do coverage. So, you know, I, I really had to craft a way to sell this stuff without having them read the book. And uh, made a whole like side career out of that, doing log lines, my book, Sell Your Story in a Single Sentence, all came from that idea of how, how can I sell material in a single sentence, you know, um, because that's how long you get on the phone <laughs> before you send them anything. Um, so it kind of has been a progression, you know. Thank God now, you know, right after Twilight and Harry Potter and, you know, suddenly everyone wanted books. I became very popular. It was awesome. You know, because I'd been banging my head on the same doors for so long and suddenly they were calling me going, what do you have? You know? So I'm really thrilled that books have become such the in thing now. To, and I always say this to, to writers. I always say to them, like, if I have two projects and they're identical and one has a book, that's the one that's going to go because it has underlying IP. So I tell writers a lot, look, you need to go online and say, find an article maybe that that deals with the same subject matter and tell them that inspired you to write your screenplay or you know, maybe you write a book proposal and you say there's a book in process. I mean, it just that underlying IP is incredibly valuable now. Yes. You feel like the the town has shifted a bit where like, I don't want to read a 120 page script and a 300 page book until I realize that that book actually is going to give me an extra million people on Friday night. Right. That's exactly right. And, and honestly, I feel like if you read a hundred screenplays, maybe three are good. If you read 100 books, probably 80 of those are pretty good, you know, because they've been vetted. They've gone through a publisher. They've gone through an editor, you know, screenplays. People just write in their living room and send it in. You know, it's it's very different. So the the rate of return on my reading hours was so much better with books. That's why I just love them so much. That's interesting. It's also sort of like a, a quality control aspect, right? Like 70 people already signed off on this as being a good story with good characters. And you have to do a little bit less legwork might be the wrong term, but like. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's true. They, it's automatically going to be better because it's been through a couple of people, you know, that that mattered before it got published. And, you know, the weird thing is that I I honestly focus on things that haven't been published yet, <laughs> um, for the most part, because you get two questions in Hollywood. If you read, if you have books, if underlying IV, how many books have sold? Is it a bestseller? Number one, if a movie or TV show comes out, it's going to be a bestseller. The Duff wasn't a bestseller until the movie came out. And second of all, it doesn't matter if a bazillion books are sold. The problem is Hollywood doesn't understand. It has a different perspective. In book world, if you sell 40,000 books, that's phenomenal. People are cheering. The agent's so happy. But if I say in a Hollywood room, 40,000 books have sold, they look at you like, so what? Because our brains are our box office, millions, right? It has to be in the millions or it doesn't have value. So it's such a dumb question because they don't understand the perspective of books in terms of what's really good, unless it says bestseller on it. it. Doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So your your educational history is sort of interesting to me because I was also an English major in college and we went to, to UVA together. And one of the, I, I think that one of the big like pieces of the backstory of our podcast was there was a class at UVA that focused specifically on book to film adaptations. I didn't get to take the class because it was so popular. Wow, you couldn't get in. Yeah. Um, and the big one, obviously, is The Godfather, right? That's and I think cool. there's, a, there's a whole story behind that. But um, just connecting your, like, reading life to say, like, hey, what's, 
what's something I can do with my love of books? I can turn them into movies. And if they're not de rigueur, then I have created a market for myself. So that's, that's, it's funny that we have that little bit of overlap. Um, but I, I did want to ask, so you started with book to film adaptations and that seems to be your lane. Um, why just focus totally on, on that, on the adaptation? I really love books and I love that it gives you such a great amount of material to work from for a screenplay. And I also really, screenwriters who can do adaptation are, are very unique birds. Not every screenwriter can do this. In fact, a lot can't. Um, you know, the, the ones that do it well are really good and they sort of know how to cut the meat from the chaff. They know which things are vitally important to keep in and which things they can cut out and not have the audience who read the book get hysterical and whatever. And I, and I, it was a learning process for me because I, I had a, a writer on a project I had at Fox, fabulous screenwriter, can't do adaptation. We learned pretty quickly that after 9 million, you know, meetings of notes and et cetera, et cetera, for hours, I wasn't getting any better. And it's because she, she wasn't comfortable with that adaptation. She kept trying to veer away from the book. And so I learned that it's a, it's a really, it's a really vital and special skill set to be able to adapt. Um, I love that process. And I, and I actually am probably one of the only producers who loves to put the screenwriter on with the author. I love those calls. Those are awesome because they're two different birds, but, but they're both like trying to create something really cool. And, and I don't know, it's just an amazing process. I, I love keeping the authors involved, which is kind of rare, I guess, in Hollywood, but um you know, it's their baby. Who knows it better? Um, but I, I, I just, I love books and the adaptation process is really, you know, it's a craft. It's not easy to adapt a book into because books aren't necessarily visual. Like the Duff, you're in her head, the whole book. I mean, like, how do you make that into a visual movie? It's a, it's a challenge, you know? And, um, you know, I think as time goes on, you get better at it. And as a director, uh, you know, because I'm very visual oriented, um, can be helpful to the screenwriter. Um, on these movies I'm doing up here in Canada, there's this one and I'm doing another one afterwards. These are these holiday, you know, hallmarky rom-coms. Um, I did a pass on the scripts, you know, no money, no credit, no nothing, because I mean, first of all, as a director, it really helps me. I I'm making sure I start out with a really good script because, you know, it's like, if you have a bad blueprint, you're not going to build a very good house, you know? Um, but on top of that, I mean, I think some people who do screenplays are great at dialogue, great at character. They're not good at structure. And I'm all about structure because I have to be able to say to that actor, you're at the end of act two where the characters are the lowest. And that's the moment I need to see, you know, you have to know where you are in the story arc and help them so that they know where they are because we shoot out of order. So, um, you know, that's, that's a part of the process I really love as well. So before we transition into some of the nitty gritty of the adaptation process, I'm curious to unpack a little bit about your company and how you work with other houses. So you mentioned like having a project set up at Fox. How does Vast work with other companies to get something on the screen? So what I do typically is sort of um, what I have this other this other project going on right now. Um, so I had a project, a book that I was brought that I loved. I love this book. And I really felt like Sony would be the right place for it. But even though I know the execs at Sony, I don't know them terribly well. And I, it's a, 
it's a period piece, it's gonna be expensive. Um, so I wanted to bring some ammunition with me to the table, uh, not just, hey, read this really killer book. So I went over to Zayden and Marin. Um, I know the president of their company and I love them. I had another project with them. And, uh, and I said, read this book. He was like on a trip, I think. He was like on a plane, he was getting on a plane. I said, if you read this on the plane, you'll so thank me later. <laughs> so, so he did, and when he landed, he's like, oh my God, I'm already halfway through, I love this, you know. So we partnered, uh, I partnered with Zayden Marin because they have a deal at Sony. <laughs> so it's a lot easier to walk it in because they already have a deal there. And we're doing it with uh, Sony Global right now as a, as a series, as a TV series. Um, so it's, that's usually what I do is I look at it and I think, okay, is this TV, is this film? And, who should I partner with? Some things I don't partner on, but a lot that I do, like the one at Fox, I partner with Peter Chernin. Like I bring them material. Their, their execs don't have the access that I have. I have now after 10 years or 11 years, I have about 65 uh, literary agents out of New York who represent authors that I work with and they send me material all the time. So, and I'm getting stuff pre-publication, getting stuff early, little sneaky piggies. So I'm bringing them things they won't see from anyone else. Um, so that's how Vast works. I get material, you know, we go through it, we kind of find the diamond in the rough, we take it out to those we think would be right for it, either directly to the network or studio or by partnering and then going. Um, and that's how we, that's how it works. Very cool. That's very interesting. That's a unique insight into, you know, how you um, can sort of get a project and sort of disperse it to the right people. Now, is that normally how the process goes? Do you usually get pre-publication work um, from these literary agents, or are you stumbling upon something in a bookshop and thinking this is this is this would be a great movie or TV show? Most of the time, it's pre-publication. It's from the literary agents, and I, you know, I will say to them like they go to Bologna or they go to whatever you know nifty book thing they're going to, and I'll say to them, I don't really care about your catalog that you're going to sell to everybody at that thing. You know what what thing has you know, do you have authors that have pitched you something that they want to write that they're excited about? Like, that's the stuff I want to see, you know, um, because usually they're a little outside the box and the writer's passionate about it. And so you end up with some really cool. I had one thing I was partnered on for uh, quite a long time. Um, trying to remember uh, 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 who was my partner, some big mucky muck producer whose name I'm blanking on now. But um, they had literally the agent had called me and said, I have an author who's got a lot of books out, blah, blah, blah. But she pitched me this idea that I think is, is cool. She pitched me like three ideas. I'm going to send you all three ideas. Um, and I'll show you which one I like first, second, third. So she sent these little write-ups to me. And I, ironically, the one that she kind of told her to shelf, that was the third idea, is the one I just loved. And I said, no, no, no. Have her write that. It's super outside the box. It's super unique. Um, and so, and that's what she did. And, and uh, we ended up setting it up, uh, trying to remember who we set it up with. I'm, I'm getting very old. So like the deals are all blending together in one big mass. Uh, but, uh, but it was great because it literally came from like a three page write up, you know, I mean, it wasn't even kind of a book proposal yet. That's wild. Uh, do you, do you, that's what oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, that's what I just said. Sometimes that's what happens. Like it's not, I tend to like things that aren't published yet because um, like the one I had at Fox, I can, I can adjust the manuscript for the buyer. So this book, I love this book. It's called Reboot. I tell everybody to read this freaking book. Um, I, I got them the, the write-up. It was a rough draft of the book and it's a phenomenal book. 
but it had the word zombie in it. And I'm like, first of all, they're not zombies. They're kids who reboot after dying and they come back faster, better looking, stronger. They're like the police force of the world, blah, blah. I'm like, do me a favor. It's not published yet. Take out the word zombie because there's 100,000 million zombie projects. I'm not zombies anyway. So I was able to do that before I submitted it to Peter Trinan because <laughs> it's not published yet. That's something I love. I'm now adjusting the book for the buyer because I know if I send them a zombie project, they're going to say no because they have a hundred of them. But if I say this is about reboots, kids who reboot after they die, it's unique and different. Now I can sell it. Yeah. So there is a distinct advantage in getting something that hasn't been published yet because you can sort of alter it in a little bit, uh, different ways. Do you, do you ever get spec scripts from people who maybe, you know, read a book, love it, and then maybe adapt it into a screenplay? Do you ever get stuff like that? Um, you know, I, I highly recommend when I speak at writers conferences that people don't do their own adaptations from books. Um, because honestly, uh, just like the reason I went to Zayn and Marin, it's all about the package. It's how stuff gets made. It is what it is in Hollywood. It's about relationships. So, uh, if you're, if you're writing, you know, uh, uh, your own screenplay, it's going to be even harder to get it made. What you really want is you want me to bring in an A-list screenwriter who every studio wants to work with for, you know, $300,000, who's going to help get your thing actually off the development shelf and get it made. It's about the package. If you don't bring value yet, that's the same reason I partner. I'm a producer. I work all the time, but I'm not Peter Chernin. So I'm not saying in Mary. It's better if I partner because I'm packaging. I'm bringing in the big guns to make sure it gets made and doesn't sit on a shelf. And that's what you want to do as well. So you're a bit of a facilitator as well. A what? A facilitator. A facilitator. Yeah, a, I mean, that's what a producer is. I always say a producer is a packager. That's what they do. Oh, did I lose your picture? Yes, I did. There we go. Um, that's what I do. I package, right? I, I, I find the kick-ass screenwriter and a great producing partner and I, I, your package, right? Because that's how you're going to get it made. Gotcha. So I need to throw all my spec scripts from The Godfather away. Those are, those are no good anymore. My reboot. No, it's no good. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Eric. And then can you talk a little bit about the difference between buying um, a book adaptation outright uh, as opposed to optioning? Most people do options. And what an option is, as I try to explain, is um, you're paying for a period of time. You're paying to have that material for a certain period of time. That's what an option really is. You're saying, I will pay you X amount of money to have the next 18 months to try to put this all together, make it happen. Um, if it actually starts going, then what they call the purchase price will kick in, which is in that option. It's listed in that option. If it's a feature film, it's usually like 2.5% of the going in budget with a floor and a ceiling. And that's where the real money is. But you're not making a bazillion dollars on an option. It's not say $2 options. I mean, that's just the time you need to try to put it together. The real money is the purchase price. That's where you're purchasing the material because you are greenlit and going to go. Um, I started out with the Duffy option. I did all of that. And then I assign that option to the studio or network. But what I learned from that experience is that optioning is not the best route, at least not for an independent producer because I'm not helping that author. And my job is to help that author. When I'm sitting in the creative room, I'm fighting for that author's material to make sure they don't turn it into some crap. But if I option something, I'm an independent producer for three grand, I'm now assigning that option to the studio or network. How is that helping the author? 
that studio network has way deeper pockets than I do. They could have gotten 35 grand for that option. You know what I'm saying? So I learned, wait a minute. I don't want to do what everyone's doing because I'm not being of benefit to that author. So I literally just do a shopping agreement for material. And I tell them when we set it up at a studio or a network, they're going to option it. Now you're going to make the money you actually should be making. And that was just a learning curve because at the time when I did the Duff, when I started, like everybody just just option. That was just the way you did it. Um, now I've learned better. And I've, and I've, all the literary agents that I work with out of New York, I, I'm like training them. I'm like, don't do it, don't option it. <laughs> like, I'm like training them. Uh, it's just, it's not very fair to that author because you're literally assigning that exact option. So that studio is getting it for $3,000 or whatever. I imagine that's been probably in the past a point of contention between you know Hollywood and a lot of the literary world and specifically authors. I don't uh, think they understood. I don't think they realized, like just thought, ooh, optioning, yay. You know, money for my author. Ooh, cool. You know. Right. Well, I'm glad that it's you know at least you're changing a little bit of that. I mean, it's probably better for the yes. author. They're probably not yes. as well protected as they have been, or they probably are protected better than they were in the past. So that's good. Right. Because like if I did uh, the one at Sony, like okay, they had three thousand dollars. Now Sony gets it for three thousand dollars. But instead, Sony, I had a shopping arrangement, so I'm attached. Sony had to negotiate with them directly and pay her a decent amount of money for her option that most independent producers could never afford. Especially, you know, we have 13 projects, you know, forget it. So it's actually better for everybody, I think, this way. Mm -hmm. And then talking a little bit about the books or the stories specifically, the manuscripts that you receive, is there something that you're looking for um, in order to think, make you think this would be a great TV show or this would be a great movie? Is there something specific or is it more of like an emotional feel, uh, instinctual feel? Um, maybe a structure, like you mentioned before, that you're looking for. Um, talk a little bit about that. I, I think for me, you know, Hollywood is is very much like that dog in the movie Up. Remember that dog? Where every five seconds he was like, squirrel! <laughs> His attention span was like a gnat, you know? That's Hollywood. So they like the shiny new toy, and then somebody brings something else, and they're like, squirrel! <laughs> there they go, you know? So it's hard um, to keep the attention span that's hard to get them excited about your project so i always look for projects that are really unique and outside the box log lines i live in a sentence things i can that are very different because like the one at sony i'm not going to ruin it but it's it's the story of frankenstein from a female point of view so it's a different beast than you're used to reading um that's what i try to do i try to find projects that make me go wow i, I have seen nothing like this this is so different and so unique um, and it is like finding a needle in a haystack. It's very tough to, to find those things, but um, but that's what I look for. I mean, anytime I start reading something, I'm like, does this feel like something I've already seen? If it does, I won't even get through page five practically. You know, it has to feel really different. And keeping that in mind, it also can't be like, okay, everyone in the entire cast is in their 80s. I can't sell that, you know? So, you know, most audiences are 24 to 35, you know? Uh, so it's it's one of these things that's very difficult to find. Um, I don't chase trends uh, because by the time you do, it's gone. Um, something Hollywood has this thing where like something a movie does well and everyone else is looking for the next one of those. I don't do that. Um, I just try to find really cool stuff that's outside the box. You know, that's not a little left of center. That's a little bit different. Um, I have to be able to sell it in a sentence or I can't sell it. Um, and that's always been my philosophy, and that's all the material I get is in that that arena because it's um, it's how you keep 
people excited about the project. You know, it's really different. Um, in terms of whether it's a TV show or a movie, you know, I've had things start off, you know, where we pitched as a movie and didn't sell and we went back and revamped it as a TV show. Um, I've had things that start as a limited series and everyone was like, well, but there's so much more material and we expanded it to a full series. Um, you know, it really depends. I think for features, you know, I always say, is this a big enough world to warrant it being on the big screen? Other than that, I mean, things, you know, they change. It just depends. If it's a great story, it's a great story. And you just have to sort of figure out what you want to do with it, you know? So, and then when you get the actual manuscript or you, you know, you have your option or you agree to a contract with the author and the studio, what are the next steps? So usually I do a shopping agreement. I either partner or take it in um, and we do the rounds, you know, we take it to, now I don't, I don't do what like the big agencies do like CAA and ICM. They, they basically send it to everyone on the planet and see if anyone picks it up. I, I just think that's a total waste of time. Um, I'm with Gersh, they're smaller um, and they have the same philosophy I do, which is, you know, targeting. <laughs> so like I sit and I look at, I have a grid. I kind of try to keep track of what people are looking for. And so I look at this grid and I think, who, who asked me for this? And those are the people I'm going to approach. And I'm going to call them and I'm going to say, hey, remember the last time you and I spoke, you said you were looking for blah, blah, blah. I think I just found that. Are you still looking for that? If so, I'll pitch you the log line. If you'd like it, we'll come in. So that's kind of how it begins. Um, I usually will attach a writer, uh, hopefully an A-list screenwriter or a showrunner. Um, again, sometimes I partner like Zayden and Marin, they got the showrunners for us, you know, like they have that relationship. So uh, so it goes from there. And then you, you know, you do the rounds like the one with Zayden, the earlier one I have with Zayden and Marin, we sold in the room in NBC. It was insane. I'd never sold anything in the room before. That was wild. Uh, so you just, you know, you do the rounds and you hope someone gets it and is excited about it as you are, you know. Um, I try to keep pitches to 15 minutes or less, just like when I call them, I keep, you know, my calls to five minutes or less. Here's a log line, are you interested? Uh, because, you know, nobody has the time in this industry to sit and hear a long ass pitch or a ginormous, you know, plot of something. You know, it's like, I always tell the uh, writers, it's sort of like, a, like a, when you go to the movies and you have the trailers at the beginning, these are the trailers. We wanna get them so, like a little bit pregnant. We wanna get them so excited about it, but leave them wanting more. If you tell them everything, they're going to be like, okay, I've seen this already, move along, you know. So it's, a, you know, it's very much about a, a strategy, you know. It's the same thing when I get a, I have a book and I want to send it to somebody. I don't ever send them the whole book. I send them like two chapters. It's like dropping breadcrumbs, you know, like, hey, guess what? I got two more chapters. Isn't this cool? Because they're not going to read a whole book, but chapter by chapter, little by little, you can kind of get them a little bit pregnant, get them excited. Um, you know, Hollywood also tends to, you know, a lot of people poo-poo like the lower execs, you know, they want to get to the higher totem pole. And yes, I know most of the higher totem pole people want to go to them as well. But sometimes having a, a lesser exec that's super excited, like a cheerleader for your project is great. So I never poo-poo that. Uh, so that's how it progresses, you know. And then um, do you feel compelled when you, you know, receive a work, do you um, want to keep the adaptation literal to the story or... Are you more like, let's let's kind of reimagine it, let's keep it loose, let's kind of build upon what we have, um, or are you more, you know, let's keep it tight, let's keep it close to the story? It's never, I warn the authors, it's never gonna be their story. Because a book, you can go into characters' heads. And in a movie and TV show, we can't. We have to show, not tell. It's a very different medium. So there will always be things that change. 
always. And it really depends on the material, how much changes. I mean, I'm very cautious and careful to maintain, you know, what the author wanted as much as I can. That's my job to fight for them. They're not in the room. Um, it's not always easy. I mean, the duff is so different, you know, and it's because the book is a little bit leaning towards R-rated and the studio wanted PG. So we had that. Um, there was really no antagonist in the story. She was her own worst enemy in her head, but we had to be able to visually show that. So we created the character of Madison. Um, you know, I, but then it came down to like, they wanted to change what Duff stood for rather than designated ugly fat friend. And I said, you guys, the point of the movie is about these labels. That's why this movie exists. So if you, if you bow down and change what it means, you're, you're, you're ruining, you're playing with the one point that matters and this whole, the reason she wrote the book, you know? So, so those things, of course, you, you know, they fight for, uh, you know, but, um, I'm also not the one paying for the movie. So I have to be very, I have to pick and choose my battles, you know? Um, you can't fight about everything because otherwise the things that really matter when you go in there and fight, they'll be like, oh, it's her again, you know? I fight for the things that I, I know the author wants, you know? Um, I mean, I told Cody for the Duff, I said, the message that you have, which is not the typical Hollywood message, which is why I love the project, which is, it's not the girl with the scrunchie and the glasses who takes them off and magically she's, you know, incredibly beautiful and no one noticed, you know, that's the Hollywood version, right? Her version was, you're a dove. And if you're gonna be the dove, be the best, own it, you know, be the best stuff in the world. I loved that message. And that message is in the movie and it is the movie. Own it and, and be the best stuff on the planet. And, and that was paramount and that will never change. And I will fight for that to my dying day because that's what the authors whole point of writing the book was. So that, that I fight for. Um, can I keep it to exactly the book? Never. Um, that said, I, I just worked for a passion flicks. I did a movie based on the best-selling novel of Brothers Honor. And Brenda Jackson, the author was on the set. She's awesome. And passion flicks, one of the reasons they get all these books is because their motto is basically, we're making the book exactly like the book or screen. And authors love that. So I did my best to really keep the things I, that she had said, you know, my audience loves this scene and this, like we, we made sure we kept all those things in. It's very close to the book. That said, you know, I said to her when we were working on the screenplay a little bit, I said, you know, it still has to have filmic structure. Like it can't not have a three X structure. So she helped me sort of like create an end of act one that wasn't quite there in the book, you know, things like that. Again, if you have bad blueprint, bad movie, you know? So, so we had to be very, it was a fine line between making sure it was literally the book and making sure it had filmic structure so it would be a good movie. So that was challenging. That was very challenging, but uh, I came my brain. Do you find that most of the, maybe conflict is not the right word, but changes you make are due to the folks with money? It's not, it's not so much creative as it is like sellable or like what will, what we're willing to bankroll in a, in a certain sense? Sometimes it's that. Sometimes it's people who want to make sure they earn their 10 cents. <laughs> so they're going to throw out ideas no matter what, good, better, otherwise. Um, 
I think now in this particular time period we're in, um, a lot of decisions are being made specifically to add diversity, like with Bridgerton. Um, I mean, we're in a really interesting time because uh, these are very different decisions than would have been made years ago. Years ago, if I got a project that had an African-American lead, I had to say to them, look, unless this is gonna be played by Denzel or Will Smith or Morgan Freeman or produced by Shonda Rhimes, I, it can't get made. No one wants it. That's all changed now, you know? So it's kind of cool actually. But uh, yes, it, you have to listen to the people who are paying for it. But believe me, I, I fight against some really, really stupid notes. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, and then it sounds like you go to bat for the author, which is great to hear. Um, now, is, that, is the author involved throughout the process typically, or is it usually just the beginning? I usually involve them as much as I can, but that's very unusual. Most of the time, they want the author to go away. Interesting. Um, you know, I love having the author involved, uh, but I'm a rare bird in that respect. Most people do not. Um, many times they'll get in their contract uh, a thing called meaningful consultation, which I laugh at because <laughs> you know what that means. <laughs> they say what they want and uh, will we do it? It's up to us. <laughs> so uh, my last my last question for you before Eric uh, starts back up again. Um, so how, how long does it take for a production um, to go from soup to nuts, right? How long does it take for you to get the manuscript, you know, sign the contract, you know, find find your items to put in a package and then have something uh, be shown to people? Very <laughs> tough to answer that. It's different for every project. I can tell you the Duff took seven years. Wow. It's why I'm so selective about what projects I take on because I'm going to invest a lot of time and I don't get paid till it gets greenlit by the studio or network. So I have to really believe that I can make it go. Um, if I'm going to spend all these years and time, you know, rock and roll. The one that I, um, I'm doing in August is a horror film. Um, I'm doing with Jeffrey Reddick who created the final destination movies, a phenomenal human being. Um, I think he wrote the first two screenplays. Anyway, he uh, helped me work on the adaptation um, with a lovely other guy who unfortunately has passed away since uh, John Stancari, but they did um, with me based on a book, um, an origin story for Bloody Mary. We started that, I wanna say in 2014, I wanna say, and it's finally getting made this year. So, <laughs> you know, but then, the one I have with Sony, you know, we've only had like, I think we've had it less than a year. So depends, yeah. really depends. Yeah. I have projects I've set up four, like Reboot, four times I set that up. Four different studios, four different producers, still hasn't gone. <laughs> would, you, would you say that there's a difference between making an adaptation um, project as opposed to a non-adaptation project? It seems like there might be more work um, because usually yeah. scripts are just sent, right? And they choose right. This has to become a script. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. It takes longer. Yep, it does. It takes longer, for sure. Yeah. Yep. But then again, you know, keep in mind, people who get screenplays sometimes takes them seven years, too, because they have, like, different writers and different rewrites and, you know, like 17 drafts later. Yeah. So, what's yeah, the, yeah, I mean, what about, so what's the quickest project you've been a part of? 
How long was that? Probably this one is sunny. I'm like shocked it's going already. <laughs> I mean, that was fast. So that's good. We'll knock on wood for you. Yeah, yeah right. Isn't the isn't the saying yeah, like right? you'll yeah, believe it when you're at the premiere? Yeah, something will happen, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious for you, someone who is a big reader who, who runs a company like this, is there a difference in your mind between a good adaptation of a book and a good film? Are those things ex- like mutually exclusive? Yes, because you can have a great adaptation and the filmmaker excuse my French, fucks it up, you know, for sure. I mean, absolutely. Um, To the tiniest thing, like, I mean, I came from theater, so I love actors, but there are people who aren't actors. Michael Bay's not an actor's director. He's in, he's a technical director. He likes to blow up things and do nifty camera shots and whatever. So if you don't have characters that you root for, if you don't have actors that are good, it doesn't matter if the adaptation is the best thing on the earth you're gonna end up with a crappy movie (laughs) you know um that's my philosophy anyway i i really believe you need phenomenal actors because no matter how great that script is if your actors can't pull it off you're done um and sometimes if your script is not so hot if it's not the best adaptation on the planet great actors can help you sell it you know so um yeah it's (laughs) it's all about the packaging i'm sound like a like a broken record it really is it's all about the package i mean um what are what are all the elements put together it's a collaborative art there's so many different you know that's the thing about being a producer you have to find the right screenplay and you have to have the right person who knows how to do adaptation adapted then you have to get the right actors in those roles in the adaptation and you have to partner with another producer if you need it if it's a bigger budget and you have to get it to the right studio so they don't have some 17 year old exec who puts out bad notes and fucks it up and you know it's just like it's all these elements that's why you you have so many movies made and a lot of them are crap. It's, it's, you know, cause there's so many fingers in the pie and you have to make sure they're all the right fingers. Otherwise uh, you're no matter what you do, you're not going to end up with a good film or TV series. You know, it's hard. Yeah. I, so let's open, I'm going to open this question up to the history of cinema. Is there any adaptation that you would have loved to have been involved with, whether it was just like a knockout book or it was a movie that like totally did not capture the film in the way you would have imagined it. Gone with the Wind. It's my favorite film. I mean, they didn't have the technical skills to make that film at that time, you know, um, even down to the to the filming. I mean, if you read the books on it, which I've read all of them, you know, the first thing her dress, her white dress was green. <laughs> they had a lot of issues um, and they didn't even have the lead cast when they started shooting the burning of Atlanta. I mean, you know, the usual things that we all go through in production. <laughs> and um, it's an incredible piece of filmmaking. You know, they had two different directors, one got fired. I mean, they, you know, they went through it and um, it still came out an incredible film and it's a huge epic. So many people involved. I mean, epics are tough anyway. Look at Game of Thrones, I mean, holy crap. Um, So I just think it's an impressive piece of filmmaking, especially for that time period. Yeah. Um, what are some of your favorite adaptations all time? Whether, I mean, are there modern pieces of, of like movie making that you thought were awesome? I am, I know you mentioned Gone with the Wind is your favorite, but um, what else? Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Phenomenal movie. Just so great. The original, not this one. Not the, not our redo, our American crappy redo. Um, <laughs> I shouldn't say crappy. It wasn't horrible. It just wasn't the original. Um, what else? I mean, 
there are some movies that I think are just so good and then Hollywood remakes them, a different kind of adaptation and I get very sad, you know, like The Professional, what a great movie that is, you know, Jean Reno and Natalie Portman, that's a phenomenal film. And then we go, let's do another one, let's adapt it in a different way and let's put in what's her face and I just wanna cry. <laughs> um, I mean, I thought Harry Potter had elements that were quite well done. I wouldn't say the first film was that great, but got better as got a little darker as time went on. Um, Fault in Our Stars was quite well done. Most adaptations sadly are not well done, to be honest. Um, that's why I'm having trouble thinking of good ones. <laughs> it's sad. Um, why do you think that is? Some of the collaborative elements didn't know how to really do an adaptation. That's my guess. Wrong screenwriter or wrong director. Um, you know, bad decisions uh, that either veered way too far from the book or changed things in the book that probably shouldn't have been changed. Uh, you know, thinking, oh, well, it's a movie. Now I got to do something nifty, you know? And, um, you know, sometimes there are, there are always elements in a book that, you know, leave well enough alone. They're working. They're great. You know. Do you think as the creator of a, of a adaptation, you have to like the book or can you tell when somebody like doesn't like the material and adapts it? Does that make for a bad movie? Like most of the time? Usually my, my experience has been that if they're adapting it, they love it because Adaptation takes some time. And if you don't love it, it's probably not going to be adapted. You know, it's that passion that drives you. A lot of times, too, when you're starting off with a writer on an adaptation, you know, you're just doing like outline or um, bullet points to get the feel for this, what the story could be. And that part's free. Like you're not even paying them yet. So they better love it, you know, unless you're at a studio. Yeah. But if you haven't brought it to a studio yet, you know, usually we're all kind of donating our time to get it up and rolling. And it's that passion for that material that's helping it go. That we're all going, we love this. Yeah. Like you mentioned, you spent seven years with the Duff. That's a long time to not really like a project, right? So. Josh Kagan did a great job. He's a screenwriter. Um, so if you don't mind us asking, what's next for you? What's next for Vast? Are there any upcoming projects you're excited about? Anything you can tell us? Um, I mean, I think I mentioned the Sony one. It's a, it's a retelling of the Frankenstein story from a female point of view. I'm very excited. It's based on a book called The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein. Very excited about that one. It's just a really amazing book. Like This author knows her shit. She is so talented. That book sold itself. I didn't have anything packaged when I brought it in. I was like, just read this book. <laughs> he read it on the plane. Read this book. It's so good. Like, And that's not I'm always honest. I will call them and say, this is a great concept. The book is so-so. It's not Citizen Kane. You may not love it, but the concept is really cool. You know, I'm always honest about it. This one, I could just go read this book. It's so good, which is awesome. Um, and then, you know, I'm excited about Bloody Mary because it's taken so long. And the book is super cool. Um, it's from Mary the Summoning. And I, there's a sequel as well. And, um, you know, just some, some phenomenal authors who have just have really cool stories. Like whoever thought there should be an origin story for Bloody Mary, you know? Bloody Mary is basically known for like bad B movies and this is totally different and super cool. And um, I just think, um, you know, those are finally, you know, coming to fruition, which is 
awesome. <laughs> Very excited about it. It's nice when you start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel because a lot of these, you know, the tunnel's really long, so and really dark. So. And then you mentioned before we started recording that you have a movie on Lifetime coming up. Can you tell us a little about that project? Yes. Uh, originally, it was called Mommune. Mom, commune, get it? Um, about a woman uh, and her daughter whose husband dies unexpectedly, and they end up with this and the other thing at this commune, essentially, for moms. It's like a, like a camp-like setting with women who help women, you know, cope and blah, blah, and they grow their own food and all this stuff. And everything seems great, but there's just something a little off. And slowly but surely, you find out actually there's a deep, dark underbelly of bad shit going on there. Um, and Lifetime, literally within a week, bought it, which was super cool. We had an offer very fast. And um, they retitled it Desperate Widows. Very lifetime title. Uh, and tomorrow night, uh, March 7th, I believe it's like 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. But you guys can check your your local listings, as they say, um, it'll, it premieres, uh, it'll be the big premiere and I'm very proud of it because, you know, it was a COVID nightmare, sort of, we get, you know, shut down three days before the end of principal photography and couldn't finish shooting until six months later with all the COVID protocols in place, which were very difficult. Um, flying in an actress from Canada was a whole other thing during COVID. Um, you know, we lost our location due to forest fires. It, it's just, that was the most challenging movie I have ever made. And I've been directing 29 years. So that'll tell you something. Um, just, you know, we had a flash snowstorm right after we started shooting in the sunny forest. Um, you know, it was a very tough one. So I'm super uber proud of how it came out and super excited that Lifetime, big Lifetime loved it. A lot of these movies, you know, they sell, um, I don't know if you guys know, but there's two Lifetime networks. There's Lifetime, like big Lifetime. And there's Lifetime Movie Network, which uh, usually little acquisition movies that they pick up here and there. And they liked, uh, they liked this so much that they're putting it on big Lifetime because normally these just go on LMN. So um, super excited to have the premiere on actual Mama Lifetime uh, tomorrow night. Uh, ironically, because I'm in Canada shooting, I don't get to watch it, but um, I'm super excited about it. It, uh, it, was, it took the entire year last year, basically. We started pre-production January and we did not finish post till the very end of December. So... Um, you know, because everything was via Zoom and, you know, only one person could be in the booth to do looping and, you know, the loop group all had masks on. I mean, you know, it was just challenging. It was very, very challenging to do a movie during COVID. Um, but if you don't finish, you have nothing. You have to finish it somehow, some way, because the film has no value without those last three days of shooting. So, uh, yeah, super, super challenging, but um, very excited that it's premiering on Lifetime tomorrow night. Desperate Widows, just remember that nifty little title. Yeah. And you probably own a DVD of the entire movie, so you can put it in at, you know, 5 p.m. Pacific and watch it. <laughs> That's right. You watch it live. I'm seeing it on real life then. Yes. <laughs> well, Lane, thank you for joining us today on the Let's Lands podcast. Be well and be safe. Thank you for having me on. This has been fun. I had no idea there was a podcast all about adaptation. It's super cool. And that was our interview with Elaine Shifter Bishop. We would like to thank Lane for joining us and Heidi for setting it all up. Hopefully we can have her on again in the near future. Maybe we'll dissect one of her adaptations. Who knows? Well, we hope you enjoyed it. You can find more updates on Lane on Twitter at Lane Schefter Bish. That's B-I-S-H. And on IMDb to see what she's got coming down the pike. Uh, and I just looked at it. It's pretty full. She will be busy. And be sure to check out her website, LaneSchefterBishop.com. 
So that wraps up season eight, Oscar bait. Thanks for joining us and stay tuned for more information on upcoming seasons and episodes. Stay healthy, get vaccinated, be good. See you later.